Well, why don't we pray real quick and get started? Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we thank you again for this glorious day, this Lord's Day, that we can come before you and, and study your word, Lord, and understand your gospel better. Uh, Father, we pray that you'd fill our minds and our hearts with wonder that all of the theology that we learn in this place would not be just mere uh, intellectual head knowledge, Lord, but it would be fuel for worship, that we would use the, the knowledge and the truths of Scripture to know you better and to eliminate whatever idolatrous thoughts we might have of you in our hearts, that we would eliminate uh, those things that are not in keeping with your word and help us, Lord, conform us into uh, the image of your son, Jesus, Lord, and help us to put on the mind of Christ as we understand and study your word now. We pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. Well, we are uh, resuming our study of justification, and we have been going painstakingly slow, but that's okay, because um, the, do the doctrine of justification is so important that, you know, Martin Luther, you remember during the Reformation, everybody remembers Martin Luther, but uh, what he did, and come on in, guys, make yourselves at home. Finally, some front row people. Yes. Unafraid. Um, but, you know, one of the things that Martin Luther did during the Reformation, so here, remember, the Protestant Reformation, uh, 16th century, you're talking about the 1500s, and one of the things that he did is he understood how essential the doctrine of justification was to Christianity, that without it, Martin Luther would say, without this article of faith, uh, the church would fall. Uh, we, we don't have a gospel if we don't have the doctrine of justification. That's why we're going so uh, painstakingly slow, and that's why I want to field out all of your questions so that we, we work through this doctrine together, understanding uh, what the doctrine of justification is. Let me just kind of recap uh, for us, and I, I can go to the screen, but uh, maybe we'll start here since we've been, it's been a while since we've looked at our, our, our slide here on where justification fits in in terms of the order of salvation. Remember, this graph represents the order salutis, the order of salvation. And justification is part of what, what we can call actual salvation, which means it falls in time and space, whereas foreknowledge, predestination, election, those are things that take place in eternity past. Justification belongs to those aspects of salvation that happen in space and time, as it were. It, it, it follows regeneration. In other words, it happens after regeneration. And what is regeneration? Regeneration is the new birth. When Jesus says a man must be born again or he cannot even see the kingdom of God, that is what he was referring to. He's referring to the work of God to make us alive, to take us from a state of death to a state of life, to quicken us, to vivify us so that we can be receptive of the things of God. See, because prior to regeneration, we are, according to Ephesians chapter 2 and other places, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, right? So all of our sin outside of Christ, all the ways that we sinned against God and violated his law prior to regeneration, what that amounts to is our spiritual death, that we are dead in him, that we are condemned under the weight of the law. And God, notice, uh, notice the M there, next to regeneration. This is a monergistic act of God, which means, remember the word monergism means that God acts alone in this. He doesn't use our cooperation. We do not cooperate with God 
so that he gives us the new birth. This is something that the Lord does on his own. This is a sovereign work of God in the soul of man. Uh, maybe just a little picture of what that looks like. You remember uh, Lazarus in John chapter 11. Lazarus is dead as a doornail. He's been in the grave for four days, and his sister says, he stinketh, as the King James would say, right? <laughs> he's so dead, he stinketh, right? It could be more proof that he's dead, but the stench of death is there, right? And so when Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb to raise him from the grave, he doesn't say, Lazarus, get ready. I'm getting ready to perform a miracle. Are you ready? I'm going to count to three. And then I need you to help me out here, right? Of course not. Jesus gives a command, Lazarus, come forth. And the power, the sovereign power of the word of Jesus Christ creates life and creates obedience in a dead man. That's exactly what happened to you and I if we were in Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. As it were, we're laying in the grave. And God, by his sovereign mercy, speaks to our deadness and gives us life. His command creates life, and it creates obedience. And so, therefore, after being regenerate, watch what happens next on the graph. We repent, and we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, upon putting our faith in Christ, justification takes place. That is when God legally, remember we talked about this before, that is when God legally can see us as righteous, right? It is not that God makes us morally righteous. That's, that's confusing justification with sanctification. There is no moral righteousness in the creature uh, upon justification. That you don't become, therefore, a good person devoid of, of unrighteousness. No, you are still a sinner, right? <clears throat> But there has been a legal declaration on your behalf that God justifies you. You are justified. You are declared. There is a divine pronouncement that takes place in the tribunal of God because God is judge. So God in his eternal tribunal, in his heavenly tribunal, where before if you were to have approached the throne of God, you would have been justly condemned. The gavel would come down and it would say, Guilty, but not smash my cell phone. But, uh, but uh, you see, God would have smashed us at that point because we were unjust. But upon faith in Christ, God justifies us so that when the gavel comes down, it doesn't say guilty. It says not guilty. Not guilty. That means God can now see you as a justified, forgiven, pardoned criminal who can go free, not because of anything you did, but because of everything that Jesus did. The sacrifice, the atonement, the blood that he shed, that is what justifies the sinner. And upon faith, that act of atonement becomes, it comes home to you. It, 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 it is applied to you. The Spirit of God takes the work of Christ and applies it to your account. And so what we're asking in these initial lessons is, where does the doctrine of justification, because you remember I asked this question, what about our guilt? What happens to our guilt? Because we looked at all these glorious doctrines. Election doesn't remove our guilt. Effectual calling, that is when God summons a person to salvation, that doesn't remove our guilt. 
Regeneration, when God quickens you and makes you alive and makes you uh, able to respond to the call of the gospel, that does not remove our guilt. Repentance does not remove our guilt. Justification removes our guilt. When God finally uh, gives that declaration to declare righteous, that is when our guilt is removed. Removed. But now, um, I wanted to, again, reiterate, what are we looking at with the Old Testament? So, where does the doctrine of justification begin? It doesn't begin in Romans chapter 5, Romans 4, Romans 5. It doesn't begin there. It doesn't begin in Romans 8, where it says, um, you know, those whom he calls, he justifies. That's not where the doctrine of justification begins. It begins in the Old Testament. And it begins in this, uh, in this idea. Our need of justification is rooted in God's eternal character of righteousness and supplied by his attribute of grace. That is where justification comes from. So you remember that the Old Testament reveals that God is a God of justice. This uh, mishpat, this word, which means righteousness, justice, right? Isaiah 5, 16, God is exalted in righteousness. In other words, when you think about worship, how many worship songs do you, do you know of off the top of your head right now that sing about justification? Especially contemporary worship songs, like on the radio, right? Justify, huh? Right? They don't even know how to say the word, let alone articulate the doctrine in a worship song. This is how pathetically shallow much of Christian worship has become. So we got to go to these old crusty hymns like the one that we just sang, right? <laughs> they, they got the good theology in these hymns. And hey, man, praise the Lord, right? Uh, because There's one Petra song that like, comes with the holy. I knew Patrick would have something. <laughs> no, I know they're out there, but they're few and far yeah. between is what I'm trying to say. Did I see a hand over here? No? Um, but you see what it says there in Isaiah 5.16. God is exalted in justice. In other words, part and parcel of the glory of God. That's what you're talking about with the, with the exaltation of God. Part and parcel of his glory is his righteousness, his justice. The sense of justice. The sense that God, in order for God to be God, it is totally contrary to Oprah Winfrey's theology. This is a God... If he is the God of the Bible who is exalted in righteousness, he cannot wink at iniquity. God cannot just, you know, skirt an issue under the rug. Oh, forget it. I'll pretend like you never did that. Right? The word of faith preachers. I think it was Creflo Dollar or one of these guys. Kenneth Copeland or one of these dudes are saying, look, the way it works is that the son forgives you and he doesn't tell the father what you did. Oh, what? <laughs> right? So the Trinity is keeping secrets from each other, you know? <laughs> No, uh, God is so holy, it says in the book of Job, he's too pure to look upon evil. He's too pure. In the same way that the Son cannot possibly allow flesh and blood to land on its surface. It is not a problem with the Son. It is the nature of the Son to be so bright and so, and so hot and so intense that if you want to venture out and try to go, you know, try to, try to put a moon rover on the Son... Don't blame the sun when you fry instantly at whatever million degrees it's burning at. See what I'm saying? It is the nature of God that he cannot tolerate iniquity or sin. Yes, sir? So is it safe to say when you were talking about the gavel comes down and 
who said not guilty. That actually, really, when the gavel comes down, he's announcing that we're righteous. Yes. You are righteous. You are forensically, legally righteous. Though you are not morally righteous, your status has changed. You gone, you've gone from an unrighteous, condemned sinner to a righteous and justified saint, right? Or righteous, justified sinner. Because remember, we talked about that last week. You are simultaneously, right now, saint and sinner. Now, the process of sanctification begins at justification. As soon as you are justified, which means you are saved, you are, you are saved before God. God has saved you. He's forgiven you of your sins. But then you begin the process of sanctification, where you are becoming more and more holy as you go. But this is the difference between, between sanctification and justification. Maybe we should do this. Maybe we can state it like this. So, uh, so justification, right, and sanctification. I'm just abbreviating. The, the difference is, is that with justification, we're talking about a, we're talking about a, a, a one-time act. It is a one-time act. It is a once-for-all declaration. Whereas, so therefore, it is not progressive, right? It is not progressive in any sense of the word. Your justification is not a progress. It is not a 12-step program. But sanctification, sanctification is ongoing, right? It is progressive, right? Any questions about that? Yes, sir. Is there an element of sanctification in which we are... Um, positionally sanctified in the sense of unto glorification in the sight of God and yet still in the process in time? Uh, yeah. Um, there we are. You guys get to see me go back and forth. This theatrics up here. Definitive. Right? So there's progressive and definitive sanctification. And so this is what it looks like. Let's, let's draw the graph. Can you all see my little cheesy graph down there? Okay. This is salvation, okay? And this is the, st the state in which you are dead in your sin. When you are saved, meaning you, get, you, you cross salvation, you are immediately sanctified. This represents, you know, I'm sorry, sanctification, this, this category here. And then you begin to reach a higher and higher goal of sanctification, meaning you're getting holier and holier the higher you go up. But remember, yes, there's a definitive, immediate sanctification. You get saved, and immediately you take on certain holy uh, 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 desires. You Im God immediately begins the renewal process, right? Who of us cannot testify to that? Uh, especially if you are, um, you know, uh, one of those cases that you had this overnight conversion. I did. I went from a state of sin, you know, rebellion against God. I mean, I was running as fast in the opposite way as I could in the world. And 
God kicked me off of my horse as it was, the Damascus Road experience, and overnight, he changed my heart, changed my affections. I immediately was awake to my sin, to my peril, to my condemnation, and immediately, I remember waking up the very next day after I got saved, looking around my bedroom and thinking, boy, I can't take one step in this room without sinning. Because I got this over here, and I got this over here, and I got that over there. And so immediately I had a sense of the holiness of God. But then I began to sanctify. But now, how sanctified was, that, was I initially? Not very much. You start asking me questions about doctrine, I'd probably be a heretic. <laughs> right? I don't know anything at this point. I just know I was blind, and now I see. Right? And then you begin a sanctification process that looks like this. Basically, it's a battle. The battle, the war, where you have peaks and valleys, but you are going up, or you should be. Mm -hmm. You should be growing in the Christian life. You're not called to be stagnant. You're called to grow, to be fruitful. What did Jesus say in John 15? What is the will of my Father? That you should bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, right? So far from going backwards in your sanctification, some people go backwards in their sanctification. They become liberal. They become loose. They become libertine. They become carnal. That's not a good, that's not good, good fruit. We should become more and more righteous as we go. Like Jeremiah 17, 7. Like Jeremiah 17, 7. What does that say? It's, um, it's, it says that uh, like a tree is planted by the waters okay, and it spreads out its fruits by its it spreads out fruits by the river. Beautiful. It's growing. It's, it's seeking. Okay. And even though it might have a lot of tribulation, it's still going to remain strong. It's still going to remain green. Okay. Right. And it's always going to bear fruit. Right. You're going to, you're going to, and some. You shook up, shook around, beat up. That's right. Yeah, some of these valleys are not fun, right? That's right, they're not fun at all. <laughs> but if you're in Christ, you will, you will come out of it. You will come out of it. Yeah, you will grow from it. That's right. Which is similar to what it says in, in Psalm 1, right? The righteous man, right, meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. He will not, you know, everything he does will prosper. He'll be fruitful. He'll bear fruit in its season. Let me go back to the Old Testament now. Uh, because I really want to get into some of the background of God's justice in the Old Testament. God promises to make a gracious new covenant that will result in justification and the forgiveness of our sins. So, for example, turn with me to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 24, uh, just to show you where already in the Old Testament God is promising to do something that involves the concept of the removal of our guilt. It doesn't begin in Romans 5, right? Jeremiah 24, verse 8. And we're going to get more into, if you're, if you're, maybe you're wondering in your mind, like what about dikaio uh, and, you know, this Greek word for justification? What about the background of Romans? We're going to get there. Okay, but I want to give you a, a bit more of Old Testament theology comprehensively instead of just going to Abraham. You know, Abraham, what is it, 15, you know, by faith, you know, he believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. We'll get there. Those are, you know, we're getting to the very essence of it there. I want to hear, give us the background of it all. Uh, Jeremiah 24, 7 says, I will give them, um, I will give them a heart to know me. For I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. For they will return to me with their whole heart. So right there, you see implied in all of this, 
you see that God is, uh, let me see if I can do this, okay. You see that God is affecting a change in his people. There is a transformation uh, that, that promises what the New Testament is going to re- reveal to us to be the doctrine of justification. Now turn with me to uh, chapter 31, right? Because that is a succinct or a summary of the new covenant that is more in-depth or spoken about more in-depth in chapter 31, particularly when you get to verse 31. So how do you remember where the, old, the new covenant is in the Old Testament? It's real simple. Jeremiah 31, 31. Right? Love those simple verses to remember, right? So Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, the days are, are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now notice, notice the theological issue you would have there uh, to deal with. Okay, This is not the point of the class, but my dear friends, what I'm saying is that this new covenant is for us. So then the question has to come you know, are you Israel? Are you Judah? Because look what it just said. With the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Some of us might stand back and go, well, I'm not a Judah, <laughs> right? I'm not a Jew. But, but, you know, the New Testament makes it clear that the new covenant is not just for Jewish people, strictly speaking, ethnic Jews, right? It is for all of God's people so that Judah and Israel become sort of typology for the people of God. Okay, that's the simplest I can say it. If you have any questions on that, I'll deal with it. But um, I just have to throw that in because you read that and you're like, yeah, but the covenant is with Israel and Judah. What I'm saying is that in Christ, we become true Israel, true Israelites, true Judah, right? Uh, And that's what uh, Paul says. I I think that's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 9. But he says, not like the covenant which, which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand, he says, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. So this is a different kind of covenant. This is not a kind of covenant that you can break. He says, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within their heart. I will write, I will, uh, I will write it. I will put my law within them and write it on their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It says, they will not teach again each man his brother and each man his, his neighbor and his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. So in other words, in the new covenant, evangelism is not necessary. In the old covenant, evangelism was necessary. You can be part of the old covenant people of God and not be saved and still need, like Moses, to be told to have a circumcised heart. But if you're in the new covenant, right, you don't need to be told to know the Lord because you will know the Lord. And every single member of the new covenant will know the Lord. And then look at this. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. So what that does is it brings up the issue of how is it that God is going to bring about the forgiveness of sins for all of these people, for all these people. 
Uh, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. Okay, because I want you to see that already in the Old Testament, you already have these messianic promises of a mediator, of a redeemer. Isaiah 42, beginning of verse 1, which goes back to, as maybe I'll talk about a little bit, the just one example of what theologians call the, the, the covenant of redemption. But look at what he says here. Behold, he says, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So in other words, God promises a redeemer, a mediator, a servant, who will be able to bring justice to the nations. And I believe there what he means is justification. He will be able to make his people just. And this is, of course, talking about Jesus Christ. He is the uh, servant of the book of Isaiah. And uh, what a marvelous thing, though. Here, you know, again, the book of Isaiah is written, you know, hundreds of years before Christ comes on the scene. So this is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. But notice that God has already singled him out for this work. And how has he done that? Well, he's done that. He's done that on the basis of the covenant that is known as the covenant, right? The covenant of redemption. I, I just feel the need to, to, to bring this up. The covenant of redemption. What is the covenant of redemption? Anybody can define it for us? Huh? Perhaps in the front row? <laughs> Trish? Very good. That's, so the first covenant that's, that was ever, yeah. the covenant So before all the man-made covenants, or the, or the covenants with man, right, God made a covenant that involved exclusively the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that these three persons agreed to certain stipulations of that covenant. People, people gripe, say, well, there's nowhere in the Bible actually says that covenant, and you know, but it takes on all the characteristics of a covenant. There's an agreement, there's uh, stipulations that are to be made, right? They all willfully join in on this. Um, maybe, maybe a proof text. I feel like I've got to justify it now, but John chapter 17. You see that there is this sort of eternal prior to Jesus coming to earth, sort of agreement between Father and Son. There's already some sort of agreement, which is just remarkable, um, because it's speaking, number one, of the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, number one, and number two, of some eternal agreement between Father and Son. And it says there in verse, ah, uh, boy, we can, um, we should read the whole thing, huh? Verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. What I am saying is that glorify your Son, that the Son might glorify you, that this is what the covenant 
uh, this is what the members of the Trinity agreed to do, to glorify one another. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given to him, that's referring to election, he might give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Consequently, the only place in the Bible where Jesus Christ says the words, Jesus Christ. But verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. When did the Father give to the Son the work to do? At the incarnation? No. Why? Because he always was, is. He always was, he always is. Well, we just saw a passage in Isaiah, right? Which goes hundreds of years before the incarnation, where the Father is promising to send a mediator to justify the nations. So way prior to the incarnation and the, 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 the uh, earthly life of Jesus, Jesus had already agreed to accomplish the work that was given him to do. So this is where theologians grapple with this. And they say, wow, this is amazing. It's like a divine conspiracy where Father, Son, and Spirit, they agree to accomplish redemption. They covenant together to redeem man, right? Which is really comforting. Maybe one more passage on this, okay? Any questions? Anything at all? Right? I want, if it's going way over your head, we can slow down, right? Um, Isaiah 53. Let's go back to the book of Isaiah. So, Isaiah 53, just to show little bit of um, maybe a parallel, right? Because there the son is saying to the father, okay, father, I have done the work. And what's the work that he was talking about? The work is the cross. Isn't it remarkable that in John 17, the son speaks of the work of the cross, past tense, before it even happens? Why, did, why does he do that? Why does he do that? His eternality? Maybe. Chris, any idea? It is so certain that he can speak of it in past tense. Right? As if it's already done. It's remarkable. It's the same thing that you find in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. Right? Those who he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. So if you have been justified in the sight of God, your glorification is so certain you can speak of it as if it's already taken place. It's really remarkable. It's a, it's a literary device that, that the authors of Scripture often use. But look at Isaiah 53, verse 12, because there you see the, um, here you see kind of the same thing. And what, what Jesus was talking about in terms of, glori- you know, I glorified you, now you glorify me, right? I accomplished the work. And what's he, what's he saying to glorify him in? Return me to the glory that I had with you before the world even was. Right? John 17, 5. But here, 
going all the way back to Isaiah, he says, therefore, I will allot to him. This is the servant song of Isaiah. This is so, this is purely Christological. This is all about Jesus, the Messiah, coming as God's chosen servant to redeem and to atone for his people and to justify them, to, ju to justify them. Um, let me see here. There is a verse that I'm looking for. Oh, there it is, verse 11. So back up to 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, that's Jesus. The, ang the result of the anguish of his soul re refers to his suffering. His, remember we talked about his passive and his active obedience. The things that Jesus did in his life. Remember we talked about Jesus was not born as a baby and then pinned to the cross as a baby. Was he righteous enough at that point? Absolutely. He was righteous from the womb. Jesus was ri as righteous as he needed to be to atone for your sin and mine. But the reason why Jesus wasn't crucified as an infant is because he had the work that he needed to do for the Father. And here you kind of see that, the anguish of his soul. So, so basically his total life is, is, is one life of suffering. Suffering, right? And we know this because in the book of Hebrews, we've been learning through Hebrews, we know that it says that God perfected the author of our salvation through suffering, right? His whole life was a life of sorrow. Well, didn't Christ himself tell the, tell the Pharisees, you know, uh, if it were not for the things that I did, that I do, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Okay. Unless you got a chapter and verse for me, because I, I can't. I know what you're talking about, but I can't. I can't. I'm in a different train of thought, so I, I'll probably uh, be able to locate it later. But what I'm trying to point out here is in verse 11 is that as is there's the cross work, the anguish of his soul, right? He will see the cross work and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, watch this, will justify the many. And that Hebrew phrase there, by his knowledge, is probably something like by having a saving knowledge in him. That's probably what it's talking about. A knowledge of him, not his knowledge of us, but a knowledge of him. Knowing him, right, by that, his servant will justify, there's our doctrine, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. And look at the result of the justification of the Son, the, the cross work of the Son, the sin-bearing work of the Son. Therefore, I will, allot a I will allot to him a portion with the great. I will divide the booty with the strong because he poured himself out to death. So, what is he saying there? Reward. Because as a result of his cross, the son is rewarded by the father. And what is this talking about? I will allot to him a portion with the great. I will divide the booty with the strong. This is the imagery of the spoils of war. This is the son having conquered, now being rewarded by the father with the spoils that he deserves. And what are those spoils? Glorification, exaltation. And it says, I will lot him 
uh, I will divide the booty with the strong. And so what commentators suggest is that this is Jesus, a picture of Christ and his final vindication with his people, enjoying the reward, the vindication, the glorification, the eternal exaltation that resulted from his cross. This is you and me, baby, celebrating with Jesus in heaven, dancing on the streets of gold. That's what this is talking about. And it's all a result of the work that the Father had given to the Son and that the Son accomplished on your behalf and mine if we believe in him. It's just glorious. It's too much. It's too much. It's like my wife likes to say, it's too much. <laughs> so again, Old Testament background for the idea of forgiveness. You have all of these Hebrew phrases, natzah, you have, uh, which means to su suspend, accept. It means to pardon in the book of Job, Job chapter 7, verse 21, to pardon our sin. Uh, this is where the background of forgiveness comes from. Also, the, the Hebrew word salah, which simply means to forgive, abar, which means to pass over, not to be, uh, not to be mistaken with the Passover, but it still means to either pass over, to let something pass by, to put something away. So to put iniquity away, right? These concepts are all given to us in the Old Testament. And yet when we go to study the doctrine of justification, where do we usually go first? New Testament, right? We probably go straight to Romans 4 or Romans 5, right? But really, you can go to the Old Testament and show all of this vocabulary that talks about how God uh, will forgive our sin, right? Kabash, kabash means to tread underfoot, to, to subdue, to cast down. Um, so I'll give you an example, Micah 7, 19, right? Micah 7, 19. That's probably not a book everyone's going to find really fast. Especially not me. Yeah. In Micah seven nineteen, this is the word that's used. He says, "He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot." Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. This idea. This is, this is, and this is all preparatory for what Christ did. These promises, my friends, are for you and for me. I, I don't know what to even think of people that can't read their Old Testament in this way, right? Where you read something like this and, oh, well, you read it only in a strictly historical context. Oh, that was great for the nation of Israel. Or that was great. One day the Jews are going to be really blessed. No. No, my dear friends. These promises of justification and forgiveness and pardon, these are all for us who are in Christ. The most important thing of all is not are you Jew or are you Gentile. The most important thing is are you in Christ? If you are in Christ, then all of these promises are for you. So, kasar, or, uh, and then kipper, to cover, to atone. This is where you get the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, right? Leviticus 16, 17, etc. All of these, these different words, to wipe 
out to eradicate. Remember, that's what uh, David prayed that God would do. Psalm 51, verse 1. Remember, Psalm 51 is David caught in adultery, confessing and trying and forsaking his sin, and he asks God to wipe out, to wipe away his transgression. And the reason that God did it is because David was justified. That's why. Uh, there's also cleansing that is promised to us there in the Old Testament vocabulary. To cleanse, to pronounce clean. Why is that important? To pronounce clean in the Old Testament. Anyone? Really just think about that. Uh, yes, sir? Maybe uh, Old Testament picture, if you were unclean, you could not participate in the sacrifices. You could do anything you needed to be cleansed before you participated. Bingo. If you are unclean, right, like the priests, if they were ceremonially unclean, they could not approach their priestly duties. They couldn't serve in God's tabernacle. So being unclean speaks about being unaccepted. It means you cannot come in, right? I heard a, I was listening to a conservative talk show radio guy, and he was talking about um, uh, what he considered to be the um, outdated religion of the Old Testament. And he started going through all this stuff in Leviticus and how you're unclean and all this. It's like, he's like, this is ridiculous. He's just mocking the, the Bible, of course, you know, because he doesn't know. And, I'm thinking, well, the whole time he's, you know, referencing uh, scripture in the Old Testament, and I'm just sitting there going, wow, what a great and glorious, <laughs> you know, what a great and glorious theology this guy's reading. He doesn't even know what he's reading, you know. It's just like he's completely overlooked the idea that he needs to be cleansed. Instead, he's focusing on how archaic, you know, the Old Testament is and how outdated and outlandish and backwoods, you know, whatever. But it really... The whole language of the Old Testament in terms of being the need to be clean ceremonially before God all speaks to our need of justification and forgiveness. Yes, sir? I was just saying that reminded me of the Ethiopian eunuch reading Isaiah, not knowing what it means, until someone explains it to him and the Holy Spirit opens a person's eyes. Right. Like in John 3. Right. Yes. Yes. Amen. Amen. But so many other things. Isaiah 6, verse 7 uses this Hebrew word here, sewer. It says, he touched my mouth uh, with it and said, remember, remember what's going on in Isaiah 6, right? Uh, this is uh, Isaiah's beatific vision before the throne of God. And uh, an angel comes and takes the coal and cleanses his lips, right? And he touches his lips. And he says, he touched my mouth and with it he said, behold, he says, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away. That's that word, sewer. It is taken away and your sin is forgiven. So this language of your, your iniquity being taken away and your sin being forgiven, that's what it's talking about, being taken away. How does that happen? That happens through the justifying grace of God, justifying his people on the basis of faith, on the ground of what Jesus has done on the cross. Um, other language, God not seeing somebody's sin, not imputing, wow, right? Psalm 32, 2, not imputing our sins, so blessed is the man whose sins are not imputed to him, reckoned to him. We just read that, didn't we, Chris, in the corporately? That's right. Not entering into judgment, God not going to judge you on the basis of justification, 
not remembering, God choosing. See, this imagery of God not remembering, isn't that fascinating? I mean, what's that, what's that talking about? Does God literally forget? Does justification produce amnesia? <laughs> no. Um, God is omniscient. So he knows all things altogether at all times exhaustively. But what he's saying is he chooses to act as if he does not want to remember. He chooses to forget it. And the reason he can do that is because it is dealt with. It is done, right? He does not reproach. God does not ask in return that you, right? He does not demand of you after he's forgiven you. He's not like man. man. Amen. Hiding one's face, casting behind one's back, all of these are the language of forgiveness. Now, what about the motive why God forgives? Turn with me in your Bible to Isaiah 43. We're running. This is also really glorious. Why God has chosen to do all of this, right? And this is a good this is good for us to to orient our minds around who gets the glory in salvation, right? Why does God save, right? Um at the gym where my wife and I work out, Jesse works out there too, but, uh, and Kristen, where's Kristen? But anyway, uh, we play Shylin. We bump some Shylin and we get our workout on, you know? It's really cool. Shylin has one song, oh no, this is tape, so I better be careful. But he's got one song where, uh, where I thought, okay, I, I, I agree with what he's saying. He said, you know, why did God choose you or something like that? Why did God save you? Because he wanted to, right? I said, okay, and she, you know, right? <laughs> you know all the songs. So <clears throat> I said, okay, that's right, because he wants to. But is there another answer for that? For his glory. That's not to be overlooked. Ephesians, 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 chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, right? For the praise of the glory of his grace. So I'm just saying, okay, I, I get it. You know, he was... He's all hopped up on his Calvinism. I know that. But what I'm saying is that we could give a more informed answer than just, just because he wanted to, right? Yes, he's free to do whatever he wants. That's true. But God doesn't do anything for no reason. That sounded a little bit, just a little bit almost like haphazard to me. It was like, no, no, no. He has a purpose for everything that he does. And the ultimate purpose in salvation and in everything that he does is to display his glory. But this gets at our idolatrous hearts. Because we want, above everything, to preserve the glory of the creature. That is the way that we're born. We are born with self at the altar. And at all costs, worship, serve, honor, glorify, uphold the glory of the self. Right? But scripture is essentially a God-centered book. So, Isaiah 43, 25. He says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions. Watch this. For my own sake, I will not remember your sins. You see that? For my own sake. Not because I owe you something. Not because you were good enough and the Canaanites weren't or whatever. Not because, you know, you were anything other than a sinner. (laughs) Right? Not because you were you're so special. 
right? And we have to be so careful here, folks, because we live in a culture that from the moment that you're born, you are, you are under mind control. You are, you're under the spirit of this age that tells you, above all things, uphold the glory of the creature. Man is central. God is auxiliary, right? It's the difference between an anthropocentric, a man-centered worldview, and a God-centered worldview, right? right? Why did God do this? Not because he needed to, not because you deserved it, not because you earned it, not because you're good enough, right? But for his own sake, to uphold his own powerful, marvelous glory. That's why he does it. Uh, some other scriptures on this, 45. Those scriptures you see there on the, on the screen, these are important for this. You read scriptures like this, and then you just really scratch your head, and you wonder, how could people do church in such a man-centered way? Right? Um, verses 25, uh, 21 to 24. Again, same, same sort of thing here. He says, declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me. I, a righteous God and a savior, there is none except for me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to me, and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. They will glory, that is, in the Lord. They will glorify him. We're out of time. So, any questions, any other comments, anything else? Hopefully you see a little bit of the background of the doctrine of justification. Where, where does the language of forgiveness come from? What is the motivation to pardon iniquity? Why, why does God do it? Why, why does the doctrine of justification matter? Because God is a righteous and just God. It is bound up in his very character. This is why God is intent on justifying us. Because without us being righteous, we cannot be in fellowship with God. So ABCs of Christianity, right? But still, don't mistake their familiarity with weakness. Don't undermine the potency of it, because this is our life, right? So let's pray and we'll go. Father, Lord, again, we thank you for uh, just some of the things that we saw here uh, in your word today, we pray that you would lead us and guide us and, and give us greater understanding and, tr and revelation of these things in your word, Father. And we just pray that uh, as we understand the doctrine of justification in a greater fashion, Lord, that you would keep us from error, as many errors can, can uh, result from a faulty understanding of what it means to be justified in the sight of God. So thank you, Lord, that it is all f by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.